Hey everyone, and thanks for tuning in to this week's message. My name's Aaron, and I'm on the staff team here at Eastlake. Everything we do around here depends on the generous donations of our local and online community. People just like you, who tune into these messages and see great benefit from living that idea that life is a gift and love is the point. So if you love what Eastlake is up to, we'd encourage you to contribute by going to eastlakecc.com. With that, let's jump into this week's message. Today, we hear from Bethel Lee as she begins our new series, Everyday Spiritual Practices. Please check the description for links to our quarterly Spotify playlist and guided meditation. Hello and welcome to this first session in the Everyday Spiritual Practices series. Today we are going to explore the spiritual practice of confession. And I want to begin by sharing with you a story that I heard in 2012. You may have heard it as well since it was told on an episode of the public radio program This American Life. Now when I usually give a talk I like to tell anecdotes or stories that come from my personal life or something that I came across in an obscure book or um, a fable, an old fable that maybe people have forgotten because, you know, I hope to offer something that you haven't heard before, which is hard to do, but I just have to go with this NPR story, even if you've heard it before, because it's just so fascinating and intense, warning that it's content is pretty intense. If you're like me and you would rather hear a good story from its source, please put this on pause and head over to thisamericanlife.org and in their archives just look for episode 473-473 which aired on August 24th, 2012. The title of this episode is Loopholes. For those of you who don't care about listening to the original, or maybe you are driving right now and you know that you shouldn't touch your phone, good job. I'll do my best to give a proper summary. So the story that Ira Glass tells with the help of professor of history, Kathy Stewart, this story takes place in Austria in 1761. And it's all about a girl named Ava. I should say, a young woman. Ava has recently been married in an arranged marriage. She has only met her husband days before. And to put it lightly, she's not doing great. She has to move 16 miles away from her parents' farm to her husband's farm, which at the time feels like moving to another country. Her mother-in-law sounds really domineering and life isn't easy for her, so Ava starts to spiral. And she's honest about it. She apparently constantly tells her husband, her mother, her brother, that she wants to leave this world because, quote, she can find no happiness. But the only response that she gets from them is the exhortation to go home, pray, and work. 
So Ava decides to end her own life. However, at the time, suicide is considered a morally graver sin than murder. Because unlike with murder, with a suicide, one does not have the opportunity after the act to confess their sins so that they can be pardoned, so that they can enter heaven. Ava doesn't want to live anymore, but she also doesn't want to go to hell for eternity. I mean, if you put yourself in her shoes, if you don't want to live, but you truly believe that suicide will send you to hell forever, that's a real predicament. So Ava comes up with a plan. She decides that she will kill herself very slowly so that she'll have enough time to get to the priest to confess her sin before actually dying. So she goes through a lot of trouble to get her hands on some arsenic and she ingests an amount so small that it can be carried on the tip of a butter knife. And this makes her violently ill for like a week, but it's not enough to kill her. And she realizes that it's going to be near impossible to figure out what the perfect amount of poison is that will enable her plan to succeed. So she bags that idea and she comes up with a new, even more hard to believe plan. To quote Ira Glass, she decides to murder a child to help her get into heaven. As inconceivable as this might sound, it was actually a strategy that many, many other people attempted and executed as well. At the time of this episode's recording, so 2012, Professor Stewart stated that she had come across about 300 other similar cases. Stewart says that suicides like Ava's, suicide by proxy, started to take place in the mid-1600s, but it wasn't until the 1700s when officials in European cities started to recognize this pattern, which was that immediately after committing the crime, the murderer would run to the court confess their sin and demand their own death. And these folks chose to kill children of all people because in this time and place, it was understood that the church considered children to be in a state of innocence. So the murderers rationalized that their victims would be fine because they'd go straight to heaven. You know, maybe they're even doing these kids a favor is how they justified it. So Ava makes her first attempt and she pushes a small boy into a river. But somebody sees them and so she reluctantly decides that she better rescue the boy herself. And then Ava makes a second attempt. One day she wanders into a nearby village and she steals a baby from the home of a 37-year-old mother and a 58-year-old father. It's their only child. Ava throws the baby into the river. The baby dies. 
and then Ava turns herself in, ready to confess. So why am I bringing up this story? Because it is the most extreme case I have ever heard involving the misappropriation of the practice of confession. And even if you had not heard of this particular story till now, we have all experienced or heard about so many different ways that the spiritual practice of confession has been grossly misused and abused throughout history. So it's no wonder why this practice has pretty much died out. It's no wonder why the mere notion of confession, the word alone, causes most of us to bristle and put our guards up. As a whole, modern culture has understandably, in response to all the misuse and abuse, developed a defensive posture that says, what I do is none of your business, you know, stay out. Our society, our neighborhoods, our homes, everything in our lives, if you think about it, are molded around this ethic of privacy. And privacy is important, of course, I'm a fan, but in regards to how we encounter the real world around us, there is a difference between safety and hiding. There's a difference between boundaries and isolation. And on the other side, there's a difference between flagrant overexposure and truth-telling. And I'm not sure if this is going to make sense to you right away, but put in another way, there is a difference between being known and being free. And when it is rightly applied, I believe that the practice of confession can help us become not just seen, but known, not just known, but free. And once we're free, then we are available for genuine connection and relationships. So the practice of confession is a gateway to the path of this kind of liberation, which is why I believe, as I said in the intro to this series, that it, like many others, are a core practice within every major faith tradition. Not to appease some angry God, not to please some religious authority, but for liberation. And as I mentioned in the intro to this series, if you listen to that, I was raised and trained in the Judeo-Christian tradition. So with this practice and, and the four other spiritual practices in this series, I'm going to use the stories and the language of this tradition to shed some light on the essence of these personal and communal practices. So throughout the Hebrew scriptures, everyone practices confession. 
tribes, cities, prophets, princes, servants, and masters. This practice then trickles down into the time of Jesus and then into the time of Paul and then continues into every Christian denomination in some form. And around 400 AD, this dude named Augustine pens what is considered to be the very first memoir within Western Christianity, which is pretty crazy if you think about it. It's a set of 13 books called Confessions. You have likely heard of Augustine as he's considered a saint by the Catholic Church and historians believe that after Paul, no one else has impacted Western Christian thought more than Augustine has, for good or ill, depending on where you stand on the theological spectrum. He is, after all, the OG founder of the doctrine of original sin. But Confessions is broadly considered a masterpiece of Western literature, and there's a line in it that I think beautifully and succinctly captures why this practice is so vital. Augustine writes, In failing to confess, O Lord, I would only hide you from myself, not myself from you. Or in another translation, I'd only hide thee from me, not me from thee. We tend to think that when we hide who we really are, or when we hide something we've done or something we're doing that we're ashamed of, we assume that we're protecting ourselves. But what actually happens when we hide is that we disconnect ourselves from the people we care most about and we deny ourselves from the life that we most want to live. Because how do we hide? We hide by lying. Big lies and lots and lots of little lies. If confession is truth-telling, then the opposite of confession is concealment, deflection, deception. And I think we massively underestimate how poisonous the habit of lying is to our lives and to our relationships and to our society. And this topic is what the first story of the Bible following the creation story is all about. If you really explore the first Genesis story about Adam and Eve, the big deal isn't that they disobey. Because of course they do. Of course they're going to eat the forbidden fruit. The real issue is what happens afterwards. After they mess up, they are given this opportunity to confess, to be honest about what they've done, where they're at. But instead, they run to the bushes to hide. And then they frantically start covering their bodies with fig leaves. This metaphor for how we frantically try to conceal and camouflage who we are 
when we're scared, we'll be judged for it. And when God asks them what's going on, instead of speaking the truth, they deflect. Adam famously points his finger at Eve, and Eve famously points her finger at the serpent. This story illustrates how concealment, deflection, and deception lead to dissonance in every kind of relationship between human and God, human and human, human and animals, human and the earth, and dissonance even within oneself, how refusal to tell the truth leads to a divided life. Just think about how true that is. When we're not honest about who we are and what we've done or what we're doing, the earth suffers, animals suffer, relationships suffer, and we suffer, usually through an identity crisis. So I really appreciate that the first human drama of the Bible is about the need for confession because confession truly is the first step to all rehabilitation and healing. When I think about Ava's story, remembering that these were real people, my heart breaks for the baby and for the baby's family. And my heart breaks for Ava, because when she gave her real true confession, not the one that she had strategized, rehearsed, and reserved to follow up her crime, but the one that came long before all that. The confession that spilled out from her as she was crying out for help. The confession that she didn't want to be married, that she didn't want to be living the life that she was living. When Ava gave that confession, nobody really heard her. No one received her confession with compassion. There are countless ways that confession can be practiced. It doesn't have to be in a confessional booth, though it can be. Depending on the circumstances, confession might be best expressed through therapy, through an apology, through poetry, art, or a song. It may need to take place in a private one-to-one -one conversation or on the national public stage. However it is carried out, though, in order for the practice to be complete, it needs to be received compassionately. Because confession is really hard. The way that this notion is illustrated at the end of the first drama in the Genesis story is with the description of God making garments of skin to clothe Adam and Eve. This motif of costly grace, care, and acceptance. And I just find that apt because confession really does feel like getting butt naked in front of a group of people. It can feel so painfully vulnerable, so terrifying, so against our protective instincts. But if you ever have done this, gotten naked in front of a group of people by 
going to a nude beach or to a Korean bathhouse if you're in LA, after the initial terror, you kind of realize that when you're in the company of people who have no interest in judging you or making you feel bad, it's just liberating. And once you've done it, you kind of can't believe how scared you were of something that's so freeing and uplifting. Hey everyone, excuse the interruption for a quick minute. Uh, my name is Kristen. I'm one of the team members here at Eastlake, and we're so glad that you're joining us today on the podcast. Um, it's been so encouraging for us to hear stories from people all over the country and the world who are listening to these messages and resonating with this idea that we um, just keep saying over and over again, which is life is a gift and love is the point, and that we are all committed to being a beneficial presence in our own community. So thanks for joining us. I hope that that's resonating with you. Um, it's just really fun for us. So wanted to also say thank you to those of you who contribute this place. All of these things that we do are happening because of people who make consistent, um, even just small consistent gifts. Um, it helps us plan. It helps us know that there are really people behind us who want this thing to continue. So thank you to those of you who do that. If you haven't had a chance to give yet, I would encourage you to maybe think about doing that if you find this beneficial in your own life. Um, to make a contribution, it's really easy. You can go to eastlakecc.com and there's a donate button there with all the info. So thanks so much for tuning in. Let's get back to the message. Okay, so back to confession of the heart. Are your minds still on the nude beaches and bathhouses? Focus, focus, focus. Okay. We are now going to ease ourselves into the practice of confession by taking some time to journal. So I invite you to get out a pen and your journal or just a stack of papers. I have six journal prompts for you. So put your timer on for at least 10 minutes, I'd say. And the goal is to just keep writing until the time is up, keep writing. Try to push yourself past one word answers and try to scribble down at least a paragraph per prompt. So when you're ready, you'll write out the first journal stem and then just allow yourself to keep writing from there. You can obviously put me on pause now and journal on your own as there should be a slide up with all of the journal stems now. But I'll go ahead and read them aloud just in case someone's listening to this while they're on a walk and they really want to meditate on the prompts while they're walking. So the first journal prompt is the poison that I choose to ingest on a regular basis is. In what part of your life are you trying to ingest the perfect amount of poison? Maybe it's a relationship or something related to your work. Maybe it's an actual food or substance or your phone social media. The poison that I choose to ingest on a regular basis is. 
pause me as much as you need to, but I'll keep going. Prompt number two is, I ingest this poison because I'm scared that. Number three, when I ingest this poison, dot, 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 what happens? How does this affect your life? When I ingest this poison, Number four, if this poison was no longer in my life, what might happen? What might change? If this poison was no longer in my life. Number five, when I think of being clothed in compassion, I think of, so just list the people and the places with whom or where you feel safe and accepted. When I think of being clothed in compassion, I think of, and number six, I feel seen known and free when now we are going to move into the practice of confession in our circle work i have three confessional type of questions i'd like you to take turns responding to in your discussion groups or with your conversational partner and I won't usually do this with the sessions, but for this first one, I will go first because um, I know that the notion of confession can be quite scary for a lot of people. And some of you might be in groups where you don't know each other that well. So I will try to model some vulnerability to hopefully inspire you to open up to your groups. So the first two questions that I'll invite you to respond to are, what was the last white lie that you told? And what was the last big lie that you told? And another way of thinking about that second question is, where in your life do you feel divided? Where in your life are you not being fully honest? Or are you hiding yourself or a part of yourself? So I'll respond to these first two questions and then I'll give you the final third question. So my last big lie and my last white lie are connected, even though they took place kind of far apart from one another. So um, I'm actually gonna start with my big lie because that one came first. <laughs> my last big lie, the last big thing that I concealed in my life, uh, the place where I felt divided, is that I have secretly wanted to be an actor for, at this point, the last 20 years. 
but for many, 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 many reasons, thought that it was something that I could never seriously pursue. So instead I went to seminary and eventually I was ordained and I've been working in ministry for just about all of my adult life. And throughout the time of my active concealment of this secret, um, which was about the year 2000 until the year 2015, I spent so much energy and time trying to convince myself out of the desire, trying to convince myself that this secret desire I had was stupid, selfish, and shameful. And that I must want it for all the wrong reasons. And so I just submitted myself to years and years of mental torture and gymnastics to just try to kill and bury this desire for once and all. Because for me, there was truly nothing more embarrassing than the truth that I wanted to be an actor. And the thought that anyone might find out was terrifying to me. Especially once I was an ordained minister. I felt certain that I would be judged and mocked and looked down upon and that I would lose all respectability. So it's 2015. I've spent 15 years of my life tor tormenting myself about this. And at this point in my life, I have worked in church ministry for about half a dozen years. And I had spiraled into a deep, deep sadness because I didn't feel right, the kind of work I was doing in congregational ministry. A deep, deep sadness. To use uh, Ava's words, I could find no happiness there. So I, at that point I had left the last church that I had served uh, for about a year. It had been about a year since I had left. And I was doing other things, but I was also still doing some work for my denomination here and there. And so the last week of June 2015, I'm in Toronto because a group of ministers from all over the country have been invited um, within my denomination to participate in this gathering to help explore ways of revitalizing the church. And over the few days of this gathering, I get to know one of the ministers in this group, and she's also a coach as well as a minister, and she's awesome and just this amazing listener. So through conversation with her, I confess to her my dirty secret. And through her encouragement, I decide that I'm going to come clean by confessing it to this group. I think it was either later that day or the next day, which was, it was the last day of this little conference. Which again, I know probably sounds like, meh, what's the big deal? But for me, it was terrifying. So terrifying that the whole thing's a blur to me. I don't remember specifics. What I do remember is that we were all sitting in a circle. I think there was like 20 people there. And all the people in this circle are really respected leaders in my denomination. They're the kind of people who are so committed to the church, so passionate about ministry, 
So the, they are the last people on earth that I want to confess my secret to because as warm-hearted as all of them are, they care so much about the church that I just felt sure they would judge me and lose all respect for me instantly. So I don't remember what I said or how I said it. I'm pretty sure I ended up crying, but I made my confession to the group and afterwards it was kind of awkward I don't think they knew what to say or how to respond. So most of them kind of averted their gaze uh, from me when we were in the circle. And a few of them though looked at me with very compassionate eyes. And a few of them afterwards shared with me how they have a theater background or that their sibling's an actor, which I really appreciated. But it wasn't like a movie. Nothing triumphant or deeply comforting happened. And yet, by confessing, I felt liberated. Like this self-induced chain had been unlocked. And I finally felt free to just take a chance and follow this curiosity, this desire that I've had for so long instead of spending another 15 years just trying to kill it and make myself feel bad. So I left that conference and flew directly from Toronto to Europe to visit my family. And I spent all of July in Vienna and Italy, lucky me. And during this trip, I told Dave that after four years of us trying to conceive on and off, I really needed us to accept that it's not going to happen and to just close that door and not try anymore because I had pretty much put my life on pause for that hope of getting pregnant. So um, I really needed us to move on and I told him that I was finally going to pursue acting. This discussion turned into a little bit of an argument as Dave did not want to close that door, um, but we eventually agreed to disagree and then we uh, made up, wink wink, and I'm telling you that because I think you know where this is going. Um, so then last week of July, I fly back, we fly back to Vancouver. First week of August, I send out seven submissions to local agencies in town. Second week of August, August 11th, I sign with my very first agent and two days later, on August 13th, we find out that I'm pregnant. And right after finding out, as we're still in shock, we drive to Seattle to attend my cousin's baby shower. And because we were in the area, that Sunday, August 16th, was actually the very first time that I went to an East Lake service. So that's pretty neat. When I looked over the schedule, I was like, oh my gosh, I didn't know that. So anyway, as expected, nurturing, even after confession, nurturing my side hustle of acting has been a slow crawl because I have had to take time out for motherhood and because it's a line of work where you don't have much power. But by confessing, for me, that confession really was the beginning of living a more honest and undivided life. And I'm really proud now 
of the way that acting has very gradually become a more and more stable part of my life, a less hidden part of my life. That means a lot to me. Which brings me to the last white lie that I told. And just FYI that most white lies sound really silly. I think this one's going to sound silly, but usually there's some deeper stuff going on if you dig and look for it. And if you're one of those people who has no qualms telling white lies, I encourage you to read this tiny little book by Sam Harris called Lying. I read that and had a total come to Jesus moment. And it really makes you understand the the problem with all kinds of lying. So last month, I'm on a set for a TV movie and it's uh, the first supporting role that I've ever gotten. So more lines and more scenes than usual. Uh, at this point in my little acting career, I've been on 10 sets for film, TV, and commercials. So I have experienced, you know, 10 times the whole process of like having wardrobe, dress you and makeup artist do your makeup and all of that. And every time so far, my makeup artist has been a white person who hasn't really known what to do with this. Um, the issue is similar to other stuff that goes on with underrepresented populations in film. So for instance, if you look into the history of film in North America, um, lighting, color balance, and gradient, it was all developed and programmed just for white skin up until the 90s. Oprah Show was one of the first to use newly developed camera systems and lighting that work properly for darker skin tones. So it's kind of similar to that. I think it's one of, it's, it's kind of a more hidden um, aspect of film, but um, for me, the way I've experienced it over and over again is that, you know, when I'm supposed to be playing somebody who's supposed to look really polished and put together, like to look good in a scene, um, the makeup artist have used colors and techniques that work best for typical white features, particularly white eye shapes. Um, and they just put that onto my my Asian face with my monolids. So, uh, you know, they give me no eyeliner. And, you know, so with the lighting and everything, I just get totally washed out. Um, and so, don't tell anybody because I'll get in trouble. But if I'm supposed to look like a polished person um, in the scene, my, my character, then, you know, after they work on me, I'll go to my trailer and I'll just fix it, my makeup, just a little bit. I'll just help them out with the Asian features. Um, you know, just give myself some eyeliner, for example. And, and I do this because anything that I shoot now is, that footage is a part of my resume for future opportunities. So again, if the scene calls for, would call for me not to have makeup on, uh, then great or whatever, right? Like, but if I'm supposed to look put together um, and I'm given just a white person's makeup, then I just fix it a little bit. Anyway, have been doing that for a while, no problems. Uh, so I'm on set last month and we're in the middle, middle of shooting and then my makeup artist, this really cool, mature for her age, goth, you know, 
kind of could seem intimidating but is really a sweetheart type of person um she comes over to fix my makeup because they constantly do that before every scene and um she comes toward my face and then she kind of like steps back really surprised and she says did you put eyeliner on your eyes and instead of owning up to it like a mature adult like a child who has been caught doing something bad i just i just go no and she has this look on her face of skepticism and confusion and i'm just like oh dear god let's move on let's move on because i feel terrible that i just lied because i've been really intentional about not lying after reading sam harris's book um so i just want to move on but i don't know how to take that back so but then instead of letting it go she says oh well then did you know did so and so put eyeliner on you the name of the other makeup artist and i'm like oh shoot because i don't want to tell another lie uh, and yet i feel like i can't admit what i just did how i just lied but i cannot tell another lie that now involves another person so we have masks on because of COVID. And so it is actually really hard to hear. So I just go, eh? Like, that's how I respond. That's my way of trying not to lie, but not fessing up to what I've done. I just say, eh? And um, I just make a noise. So she just kind of continues to work on me with like this stern face. And I just feel like she knows I'm lying and is pissed that I'm lying and that I attempted to fix her makeup. So I feel so bad. And we, we finished shooting and this was a Wednesday. So we get the weekend off and I'm not back on set until Tuesday. So I hate that I lied. It just eats at me. Uh, so over the weekend, I try to find her contact information so I can email her and just explain everything, but I can't, I can't find it. So finally Tuesday rolls around and it's, been almost a week now so i've lost a lot of my initial nerve and i've lost some of the guilt too you know i start justifying in my own head like oh you know what's the big deal i don't need to do i you know do i really need to admit that i lied can we just move on and can i just learn from learn from it myself uh but again ugh, i just i feel convicted so um so the first thing i do when i see her is i i say I'm so, so sorry. You know, I, you asked me if I put eyeliner on, I said no, but I did. And then I was about to roll into like a whole prepared speech I had of explaining the entire thing. But before I could say anything, she just looks at me with a serious face, cuts me off and she says, oh, oh yeah, you, you put eyeliner on because you have monolid eyes and if you don't, so if you don't have eyeliner, then the lighting will totally wash you out and this industry is pretty racist so mo most makeup artists don't realize that and that's a problem, right? And I was like, uh, yeah, pretty, pretty, pretty much, pretty much, pretty much what I was gonna say. Um, and she's like, hey, you're good, we're good. The reason she told me that the reason that she asked whether I put eyeliner on was because she was going to put it on and at that moment that she couldn't do it earlier because somebody else had it. So she was about to put it on. So she was just really surprised when she saw that it was all already there. So that's why she asked. And I 
I know that, I don't know, I just feel like it sounds so silly, right? Like this, this whole thing that happened. But by admitting that I lied and getting to hear her response, it was so liberating. Um, it was so liberating to, to learn that my assumptions were wrong. And if I just hadn't, if I had just like buried it and been like, whatever, I lied, no big deal, move on. There's so much I wouldn't have learned about myself in that situation because when I really sat with it over that weekend, I was like, why did I lie? Like, that was so ridiculous. Why did I lie? All this stuff came up. I realized how I still lack a backbone when I'm scared. I'm really scared to ask for what I want, obviously, as this, <laughs> as this whole long story goes, I feel like that's my theme, but I'm really scared to ask for what I want. I'm really scared to... Um, to not be the nice person, not be the easygoing person, to to uh, for people not to like me, all of that stuff. So, you know, I, I I realized I was like when I thought about it a lot, I was like, oh, that isn't the only lie that I told while I was on set. I lied a lot because every time somebody asked, oh, is something wrong, or you know, is that thing bothering you, or something, like that, I'd be like, oh no no no, great 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 great. That's like always my response, like oh great great great, everything's great, even when it's not. So just think about the white lies that you tell and why do you tell them? You know, what are you afraid of? If you're also the type of person who's like, great, great, everything's great when it's not great, like why do you say that? What aren't you owning? What are you afraid of owning? What are you afraid of being? <sighs> so those are my confessions. I hope you have a good time telling yours with your group or your partner. And the third question that I love for you all to discuss is something that I heard Jerry Colonna talk about. It's a question that was asked to him by his therapist, Dr. Sears. And the question is, what am I not saying that needs to be said? What am I not saying that needs to be said? Oh, that's such a good question. When I hear that question, my heart starts to beat faster because I know there's stuff that I'm not saying that needs to be said. So I'm going to think about that one myself and I'm going to share it with somebody in front of me because that one for me is so uh, tender that um, I can't do it with a screen. I really need to do it with people um, in front of me. But uh, so yeah, I hope you'll also feel your heartbeat as you hear that question your heartbeat faster and um, that you'll say the thing that you haven't been saying all right thank you for joining me today i hope you have really interesting and healing conversations learn from my life people don't waste years and years of your life energy not saying what needs to be said and as you go from here, may confession free you, may compassion find you, and may love be your companion and your guide. Have a good week. Thank you for joining us. To make a donation, head to eastlakecc.com donate.